is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing one of the greatest graphic novels ever published, a work that landed like a meteor amongst the dinosaurs when it first arrived and has continued to influence storytellers ever since. I'm speaking about the masterpiece of superhero deconstructionman, Watchmen. Watchmen is the work of writer Alan Moore, artist Dave Gibbons, and colorist John Higgins, and was published by DC Comics from 1986 to 1987. It was conceived as a 12-issue maxi-series involving a very human take on a stable of costumed heroes originally published by Charlton Comics, but subsequently bought by DC Comics. Moore had always disliked how writing superheroes meant being unable to make major changes to the characters or their settings. He wanted to tell a superhero tale with lasting consequences for its characters, and one that was aimed at adults rather than kids. Since the story he had in mind would render the Charlton characters unusable afterwards, DC had him create analogs of them to populate an alternate reality that looks a lot more like our own than that of Metropolis or Gotham City. In this world, there was a brief period in the 1940s when costumed crime fighters ran around punching out bad guys, but then were quickly forgotten. Also in this world, Nixon never left the White House. America used its only bona fide superhero to win the Vietnam War, and by 1977, costumed heroes are straight up outlawed unless they work for the government. It is a world where dressing up in costume to stop crime doesn't just seem irrelevant, it seems stupid, as well as grounds for psychiatric evaluation. The story begins in 1985 with the murder of Edward Blake, AKA the comedian, a grim state-sponsored costumed hero who does all kinds of black bag work for Uncle Sam. Beaten to a pulp in his apartment and thrown from a window, Blake's homicide sets off alarm bells with the renegade vigilante Walter Kovacs, AKA Rorschach, who investigates the crime. What Rorschach discovers is a conspiracy to knock off the other costumed heroes of the day, whether they are active or not, including Dan Dryberg, AKA Night Owl, Dr. John Osterman, AKA Dr. Manhattan, Adrian Veidt, AKA Ozymandias, and Lori Jupiter, AKA Silk Spectre. But as the world hurdles towards nuclear war between the US and the Soviet Union, the human frailties of our heroes render them nearly powerless to save the day. If they cannot contend with the demons in their own heads, how are they supposed to save the world? And if the world is to be saved, does it really need them to save it? Scrawled on the walls of this world is the graffiti, who watches the watchmen? But perhaps the more important question is, who's watching after them? With its mature human first look at superheroes, distinctive panel layout, unusual narrative techniques and pointed cynicism, Watchmen blew the world away when it was first published. For many, it remains one of the greatest superhero comics ever created and is part of a pivotal period of time when graphic novels proved themselves capable for delivering true literature. Watchmen is a story that has influenced so many writers and artists, and in many ways, it's forever changed the notion of superheroes themselves, as well as the boundaries of comic book storytelling. It's a story that has hugely influenced me, and I'm delighted to discuss what we love most about it. With me today is Sweet Chariot Sugar Cube VP of Distribution, Chris Crenshaw. The sweet one! <laughs> 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 it's only in catering bags. Vite Enterprises Head of Market Research, Tom Hespos. I love the smell of nostalgia in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Institute for Extraspatial Studies Research Director, Joe Pace. None of you understand. I'm not locked up in here with you. You're locked up in here with me. Yes, everyone, welcome. 
So I'm going to kick things off because all the moments of truth today are kind of towards the back end of the story. So I'm going to kick things off with the moment of truth more from the beginning of the story. And it comes from the third issue in all this. To set the stage, it's pretty early in the story. The comedian has been slain. Rorschach is trying to investigate and he's going around to the other heroes to see what's going on. And Dan Dryberg and Lori, and Lori Jupiter have kind of gotten together for, for dinner and they're building up a relationship. They're walking around. And they're walking back from like a, like a date at like a coffee shop or something. And they get jumped by these five gang members in an alley. And these guys get close to them, brandish their knives. And Lori and Dan look to each other, tuck their glasses away, and just launch into these dudes and just lay them out. What would be a routine comic book beatdown in this scene is anything but, because the scene is so loaded with subtext. And it's almost like a narrative mission statement for the story. You know, what's really interesting about this scene is when you're reading it, you see across the whole fight sequence, there's this narrative interplay because what's happening at the same time these guys are in this fight is Dr. Manhattan is at a TV show, like a talk show. And he's being interviewed by this journalist from a publication called Nova Express, who is you know, hitting him with allegations that Dr. Manhattan causes cancer and all those around him. And the word frames that like the questions being thrown at Manhattan are overlaid on top of the fist fight. And they're kind of a secondary commentary on what's going on in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be a superhero? What do you do as a superhero? Who do you care about who you hurt along the way? Very rarely in Watchmen is just one story being told. It's usually like more than one story being told at the same time with prose or with imagery. It's a pretty sophisticated you know, piece of, of work there, the way they cut back and forth. But the thing that I really come back to in the scene is the fight is pretty brief. It's just a couple panels. And it's left with you know five of these, these jokers laid out in the street. And Dan and Lori are back to back and looking at each other and they're breathing hard. And they look at each other and there's this moment. And it looks like they're just going to just take off their clothes and just go at it like animals right then and there. Like there's this like intense moment of sexual attraction between the two of them. And they're like, oh, um, yeah, yeah, okay. And like Lori turns around and like smokes a cigarette right off the, like it's like, you know, the fight is basically like having sex and they're just, they're just so, they're so obviously the act of being a superhero is, is attached to much deeper hangups they've got. And this is kind of a big theme that, that Moore explores, which is the notion of that, you know, this story comes at superheroes from the human first who then later puts on a costume not the concept of a costumed super figure that is also a human on on their days off and he kind of gets into this notion of like you have to have something wrong with you to put a costume on to be to begin with and half the time it's some sort of like psychosexual hang-up of some of some kind i mean most of the characters have some kind of sexual dysfunction attached to their their crime fighting career this is in the third issue this is like you know and lest we forget in the second issue we see this horrific scene where, you know, in the old days where the comedian attempts to rape Sally Jupiter, right? It's this, it's this horrible gut-churning sequence. So, you know, he's laying out that, like, these people are not normal. And we're not, we don't mean because of their abilities to, you know, fist fight and do whatever. Like, they're just not right. They're not all there, right? There's something, there's something broken with these people or they're, they're somewhere, somehow they're off frequency. And I think that's an interesting way of how, you know, more kind of sets up this thing like he's going to deconstruct this genre and he's going to deconstruct it in every way he can and he's letting you know right off the bat that if you want a straight up superhero story you're just not going to get it and you really see it in the sequence yeah i mean i think it's it's fascinating the extent to which part of what Moore is telling is a story about repression from an institutional standpoint and from an individual standpoint so i mean there's you know we have a 1985 that even though it's you know there's no ronald reagan except in hints and, but we, we are in this, you know, Nixon's America and it's, you know, it's law and order and all this other stuff, but things have been you know, ratcheted down. Things aren't allowed, you know, superheroes aren't allowed, you know, all this other sorts of stuff. 
And so from an individual standpoint, they have not been allowed to go out and use their talents or pursue their, you know, avocation of fighting crime. And so when they have a chance to do it, it is like having sex after a long time, right? Like they're able to, they're able to let their dog out and play, right? They're able to let their freak flag fly. So I think that there's this ongoing, uh, I don't think it's even subtext. I think it's pretty prominent about, you know, these, these people are a little bit messed up, but they're not allowed to be who they are. And that messes them up more. Yeah. And they're all, they're mm. all broken from yeah. their backstories, whether their you know, parents were a mess or their parent was a superhero or, or whatever else, they are all broken. Um, and it does take it to a, a, a very different place. Like, you know, no matter how much they made Wolverine broken, you can't imagine him knocking Jean Grey down and trying to rape her. That's just not something that we no. ever would have seen. No. And that's when you no. talk about it being a completely different uh, form of storytelling. It really did do that. We might have seen that in the Ultimates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Ultimates was transgressive in that way. But yeah. Why well, I've never read the Ultimates. Yeah, but the Ultimates is also like clearly a post-Watchmen take on superheroes, and, and absolutely, and it's it, it's one of a huge number of examples of stories that were kind of made possible by by the ground broken by Watchmen. <laughs> Unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Punisher yeah. is the direct child. I think it. actually came first. This sort of skewering of the superhero psyche is accompanied by you know an equivalent skewering of, of the society in which they're operating when we we hear from this crazy right-wing magazine the frontiersman over and over you know we we get like other blaming that's not only identical to s- stuff you would read today but it, it's also similar to what you'd read today and that doing russia's bidding would have been considered unthinkable by a conservative back then. I mean, yeah. th- there's there's this like really ugly sense of exclusion that that was clearly there even though i think we didn't see it so much when we were this age yeah it's absolutely the seeds of what we see today even when it's right i mean you know in that in in that i think it's issue eight uh they have the end material is all from the new frontiersman the first bit is just you know anti-russia propaganda but the crank file story they, they put out is right yeah it's absolutely yeah. correct yeah. i mean for, for kind of the wrong reasons but it, it's it's got the facts right i actually had a hard time reading that bit of 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 supplementary material only because i've got a long history in publishing and it's pasted up so sloppily like all the columns are like askew and i was like i was having the biggest moment like oh my god you guys lay it out like oh it doesn't take you just got to pick it up and lay it down again i mean come they've got guidelines on the paper what is wrong it's, that out. Yeah, it's, it's not hard you can do it as many times as you want <laughs> that's the point though i mean there's no. it's true to life i mean i i, I think back to you know the, the mid 90s when i was president of the student body at the university of new hampshire and i would get mail from these groups these these hate groups and it would be pictures drawn of here's the size of a human skull and brain here's a monkey's skull and brain and here's what yeah. the negro's skull and brain size oh, and the Jews skull and brain. i mean this nonsense, stuff is so yeah. toxic Awful. But you were able to throw it in the trash and say, "Ah, that's some crank out there." And yeah. the stuff is sloppily cut and pasted, right? And, you know, exactly on that. That's why I say it's true, true to life. But you know, part of why I think the Watchmen, to your point, resonates now is that this stuff is is still with us. 
and has been given fresh and more prominent life through some of what's been going on. And the quiet stuff is out loud now. And some of Alan Moore's work was like yeah. disgustingly prescient in a lot of ways, specifically out of this book. Uh, and that makes it, like you said, almost upsetting to read some of the material. That you, you really, you really hate for Alan Moore to be right. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Don't no, no. want him to be right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's horrible. But I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, we all take different things out of what we read, right? I mean, like, you know, we, we can, we can read it and look at Rorschach and say, here, this guy is, is crazy. He's broken. There's a lot wrong with him. But I specifically remember reading this and having people, he was their favorite character. Not in the sense of he was the most interesting character or the most fascinating, but they liked him. They thought he was a hero. They thought he was, they liked his style. They liked what he was doing. They thought he was tough. They thought he all this. It's like the, the, the cops that have the Punisher logo. It's yeah. like, you just don't yeah. get it. You don't understand that you know, this is ironic. It's exactly yeah. that. I mean, uh, Moore said that uh, Watchmen failed as literature because so many people got into Rorschach and thought that he was such a great character. He's God, he's a great he's a great character he's a terrible human being right yeah just this savage freak who just you know i think everything you need to know about rorschach is this, is in this opening sequence of his where he walks into this dive that he clearly like in this world it's it's the low life minion dive that you go and you you shake people down for information like in daredevil it would be josie's right the kind of place where he walks in bar fighter up somebody goes to the plate glass window he gets somebody to talk to him but when Rorschach walks in, he just walks in and you can hear a pin drop. And everybody's like, oh no. And he just strolls up to some dude, starts breaking fingers. And they're like, and, and rather than everybody getting up and jumping him, this big biker's like, Jesus, man, leave him alone. Like, that's, that's how terrifying he is. And so for people to look at him as his, as his hero, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a weird inversion. But I remember comics at the time, you know, were undergoing this really big shift, right? And they, you could you could start to publish outside the comic code authority that was a big that was a big one you can start basically publishing what is what were amounted to r-rated comics right some of them just gloried in excess sex and violence because they could but there are other ones try to use that latitude to tell a different kind of story you know but along the way though there you, you can get away with whatever you can publish whatever you want you know and so a lot of people who are used to reading these very you know very repressed comics, frankly, <laughs> you know, suddenly the comics themselves are no longer repressed and they could do any, whatever they wanted to do. And so like a, like a guy like the Punisher in the old comics code authority, he could not have been anything but a straight, clear bad guy, right? The, the, the comics code authority would have forbade it. They got to point like, well, we can just make him like a sympathetic anti-hero. Maybe we like him, maybe we don't. And you see, you see these kinds of heroes start popping up and Rorschach was kind of, I know, Moore wasn't trying to pave the way there, but he kind of did <laughs> just because his character was so well done. It's, it's kind of a, a weird thing. It gets away from my original point, but it's, it's kind of, you know, but, it, but again, like, you know, he's, he's exhibit B on how, you know, the only people who put on a mask in this world are people who are deeply, deeply, deeply messed up, you know, and um, you were going to say something. Yeah. I mean, I actually wanted to take it back to, you know, earlier point that you made about, you know, the juxtaposition of the stories, Bill, like, like mm. that you can do something like, you know, create a character like Rorschach or deconstruct things in the way that, you know, you mentioned where, you know, this, this basic scene that you mentioned is just this, like, it's, it's basically like foreplay. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> want to get down to it. it totally and then is. you got this other thing like weaved in there now, you know, like I'm not an artist and I I'd certainly, like, if you asked me to draw any of these characters, it would be laughable. I am a musician though. 
And in the music world, we would call that contrapuntal, where you have two lines up against one another and they're intertwining and working together mm -hmm. to build something like one plus one equals three. You know, you see the story that that's intertwined with, and it's just, it, it, it's almost like more deconstruction. It's like, you, it, it just, I feel like Moore did it almost because, you know, he felt like he could. And, you know, it was just like kind of like showing off. You're basically taking like, you know, all these superheroes that have been created by nuclear accidents or, or things like that. And you're saying, you know, what if they all just gave you cancer? I mean, they certainly come from that area of like nuclear, you know, whatever, that it would probably just give everybody cancer. So that's what he did with the yeah. story is it to me is like hilarious and masterful at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you, Tom. And, and I think when you look at the scene, this is one of the few times in the whole story when even though they're not in costume, these two costume superheroes, they, they get to do their thing. They do it competently they do exactly what they wanted to do it's you know for them it, it's essentially a, you know a win right and yet the scene it's not ennobling and it's not empowering when it's all over you kind of feel bad for these people you know like mm -hmm. yeah and, and you're like okay it doesn't make you feel great that they lay these guys out and, and it's just a very interesting to set that so early on it, like you know i that's a scene i just noticed when i read this again like right off the bat it's like okay like you know before we even get to you know the third mark you know this is a clear sign that you know yeah, there'll be procedural elements in the story, but this story is leading to some place that is so far beyond where you expect a comic to take you uh, that you need ample warning so you can kind of wrap your head around it. Because when you get there, it's going to change everything. So speaking of that, I'm going to run right to our next moment of truth, which is towards the end of the story. And Chris, I'm going to hand it over to you because this, one, this one's all you, man. You know, the first time I read Watchmen, my reaction was something like, wow, that was pretty powerful, but I'm not sure I get it. And did it have to be so complicated? When I reread it, you know, I guess I started to pay a little bit more attention to the art and the background and stuff. And it is a very slow read for a comic book, right? I mean, I, I would imagine everybody reads with that because it's so dense. On my second read through, when I got to the, the event where uh, the alien creature, spoiler alert, appears in New York, right in the middle of the neighborhood that we have been inhabiting throughout this entire story. There are six consecutive full page panels. They begin with the exterior of Madison Square Garden and, and the clock, which uh, is, is what the cover art is taken from. The cover art on all of these issues is like a sort of a, a detail from the first panel of the story. And, and then it moves through just there's sort of different angles on, on this neighborhood that we've come to know and a lot of americans have, have been here if you've been to new york on a train you've been right here because you know if you, if you went amtrak you you came out at penn station and this giant tentacled monster has appeared and there has been some sort of cataclysm and we see familiar characters and strangers dead by the score. The detectives we've been following, the cabbies, the Dr. Long, the, yeah. the psychiatrist, the, the newsstand guy and, and the comic book reader. Additionally, we also see all of these other things. You know, we, we see the sign for the Promethean Cab Company and the van for the Gordian, not locksmith guys. Uh, there is a copy of a newspaper that has one of Adrian Veidt's uh, Vite method ads on the back and it says 
I will give you bodies beyond your wildest imaginings. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we see the, the concert posters. The, all of these things have been a part of the background, of the, uh, literally part of the background of this story for, you know, 11 issues. And now here they all are densely presented and over yeah it, it it's a stunning moment and and it, it just it, it it gets me you know that the the little the side story of the gay cabbie that could have been well it was more so it was never likely but that could have been an iconic trans story yeah because that 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 woman was clearly transsexual and struggling yeah. Uh, well, I, I did not read this in 1986. I, I read this uh, many years later, probably about the same time Joe did. I, I was a latecomer to it. 2000 or so, yeah. Yeah, I always responded to it as an adult. Even when, you know, I was uh, kind of a, a hard-ass jerk, that was a character that I knew to sympathize with. And and and, and when she goes off the rails, it's so ugly and, and sad and... Yeah, all of this background stuff, you can call it more going up his own butt or being self-indulgent. And and you know what? Fair enough. But it gives this story an emotional weight that I think very few comics have. And, and that's really supported by the art that puts it all in the background, of course, that, that's so detailed and, and attentive, but also so realistic you know, the, these superheroes, other than Dr. Manhattan, they don't look like superheroes. They look like middle-aged people. And yeah. Dan's dad bud that he's got. You know. <laughs> yeah. Dan's face is is almost sad. Yeah. You know, it, it's not heroic art, but it is amazing art. I, uh, I did not like it at first, but every time I read it, I think more of the art. The I, I think the art is improving, even if the writing isn't, in my estimation. I really had a hard time wrapping my head around Gibbons art uh, initially because it was so not to genre spec. It was so ordinary um, and it was, and it was so rooted in this real world that more very much wanted us to feel like this is a real world thing. This isn't a world. This is the real world where people dress up as superheroes. It's not a superhero world, right? It's not Marvel Manhattan. Right. There are aspects of a Gibbons art that I might take some issue with, but I mean, as somebody who can't do it myself, uh, you know, I, I, would, I, <laughs> I feel ill-equipped to, to quibble with it. But I will say this. He, I think he illustrates Moore's intent expertly. I think he, he gets that depth of focus that Moore really wants. He wants you to see all these things. Moore often would talk about how the way he structured the story, he wanted you to read it at like a, he wanted to mess with your pace of reading quite a lot. He wanted to stop and make you, make you stop and pause, right? And, and to really look at panels. It's a big reason why he was like, at least for a time, very much against well i guess he was always against the adaptation of these things for like you know film and tv but for a while he was very vocal about it and he was like you know when you watch a film or a movie or a tv show you, you, the information you're given is at a certain number of frames per second you don't control the rate of information intake unless you pause and rewind but with a comic you can stop and you can focus and you can really drill in and he really wanted that to happen throughout Watchmen and with these with these panels, you see it throughout the whole book. But on these six extraordinary splash pages, it takes up nineteen percent of the last issue. Right, it's just this scene of apocalyptic carnage. He spends so much time building up this world, so you can then see what it looks like when it's been destroyed and shattered. And it's yeah, it's astonishing. So it's pretty pretty. Amazing. 
you do spend a lot of time with that. Yeah, there's there's a whole lot. Yeah, you know, like the from the first, you notice like a few things that you've seen in other parts of the story, and then you do really have to drill in because you're like, oh, you know, like there's got to be you know a dozen things in here that like I've seen yeah. before, and I I don't want to miss any of them. I want kind of want to see. You need that resolution in order to uh, to move on. You know, just to see. You don't want to miss a damn thing, and it's it's such a dense read on top of that that it's it, like it, it's characteristic of the whole thing. Thing that uh, that it's that way that the art is that way yeah I, I want to reiterate how human that okay. makes it you know when when Lori comes back and and she and John are, are walking around this exact scene she's like it's the Gunga diner which of course she has been to yeah. with Dan we've seen Rorschach there you know it is it has been in the background the frontiersman guys get lunch yeah. there it has been in the background we've seen it's constantly. trash on the corners more times than we can count it's it's omnipresent yeah and and she's like, these people just wanted Tendori to go. Yeah, that's a goosebumpy moment. Yeah, for me. There, there is very much of a focus on the cost of of things, um, and the human cost of things at a granular level, right? And that's to your point why he tells us these side stories so that we have a moment with each of the you know, there's a, a beat or more with each of these side characters, and then we see their lives ended, right? It's it's the line out of Unforgiven, right? Like you know, you're killing a man, you take away everything he's ever been, anything he's ever going to be. Like those stories are all snuffed out. Yeah all at once. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think um, this time, one of the, the, the side stories that really stayed with me was Dr. Long, Malcolm Long, the psychiatrist who's working with Rorschach when he's in, in jail. Yeah. And I don't think I noticed it until this time. Like he's clearly trapped in a loveless marriage because I think he's gay. I think that there's some subtext in that that you can read actually, that his wife wants some things from him that he's not doing. Yeah. I never picked up on that ever when I was 20, yeah. but at 45, you know, after you've been exposed to some things in your life, you can start to pick up on this stuff. And there's tragedy in each of these lives, yeah. these little lives, yeah. but they matter to the people that are living mm -hmm. them. So yeah. you, to your point, this juxtaposition of here are these heroic figures, by the way, none of whom is heroic. Yeah. There are- And none of them mattered. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the things I find fascinating about this is that one of the deconstructive pieces is that it says there are no heroes and villains here. It's like the difference between comic books and Watchmen is the difference between Lord of the Rings and uh, George R. R. Martin, right? Like it's like instead of it, <laughs> yeah. instead of it being you mean you mean yeah. what, you mean, you mean one was finished and the other one stayed in limbo for eternity, <laughs> right? 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 But there's but there's literally like handing you this Manichaean environment of. Here are the good guys. Here are the bad guys. You know who they are because you know who the white hats and the black hats are. And now they're going to fight and we'll see what happens versus everything is textured and everything is nuanced and everybody is shades of gray. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when we watch, we read Watchmen and here's the comedian who's clearly a bad guy, but he gets to be a good guy. And one of the most sympathetic characters is Moloch, the guy who's like a villain, right? He's a guy they used to fight, yeah. but now he's like, I'm just trying to get by. I'm dying of cancer and that's my medicine. And it's like, he's a sympathetic animal. Yeah. So there are no blacks and whites in this thing. It is, it is very textured. Yeah. And that's something that um, certainly in 1985, nobody was doing that. Oh, no. And so it's-, it's yeah. and, and certainly not visually, you know, the more I read watch them, the more it looks like, you know, it, it, these frames were actually caught by some sort of photograph. Uh, rather than actually redrawn just because yeah. the detail just keeps going three, four fields back. And, you know, comics of the day were just like production line type things. You know, even, even like prestige level books just didn't have this level of, of visual detail lavished upon them. The backgrounds would be just, you know, sort of crude and that sort of thing. And they weren't 
seen as a secondary or tertiary storytelling element that you were meant to pay attention to, or were just meant to give you a detail that was kind of subconscious, like just something to, to yeah, like, like the Gunga Diner, for example, like, like that's, there are little throws to that all over the place. And you're not even meant to, the frame doesn't even draw your eye to it. It's just there, just remind you, it's always there. And that kind of visual representation is, you just, you don't see it in many comics now, but you sure as heck didn't see it back then. I think that was one of the things that was so different about this. And, you know, you can get on Gibbons for not drawing by superhero standards, but he, the visual craft in, involved in here is astonishing. And I have to say Higgins coloring on this as well, by the way, oh. it often gets overlooked, but oh. virtuoso coloring in this book, virtuoso coloring, it shifts the mood so often in ways you don't even understand it's happening until it's over. It is used so, so, so perfectly. Oh my goodness. And he, he gets over, poor Mr. Higgins gets overlooked all the time. When people talk about Watchmen, so shout out <laughs> to him because the colors on this thing really make it happen. I think I had mentioned earlier, maybe even during our prep work, that the art to me wasn't something that I loved because it is um, so different. You know, it's not John Byrne. It's not, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. not this like yeah. super um, polished kind of, mm-hmm. of artwork. It's not beautiful. It's not, it's not stunning. But to your point, as you read it, it is indelible. And as you go into, like you said, into the fields, like there may be a crumpled piece of paper in the corner that's not even in the center of the scene, but there's what may seem like a throwaway detail or something, but each of it, there are like little Easter eggs scattered throughout it yeah um, are, are, it is brilliantly done even if it it's might not, well be important yeah right so, so to that point i knew this could be chris's moment so i went through the book again this evening i was sort of painting through looking for other frames that really jumped out at me as being very rich with contextual detail that you kind of blast right by and there's one frame i really really love i believe it's actually in the near the end of the first issue it's when dan and Lori first go out to dinner right? She's, she's with Doc Manhattan. She's like, that's, I got to get out of here. You know, she's rattled by the news of comedian's death and they're eating at this restaurant and there's an establishing shot of them in the restaurant. They're in the far background, right? And what do we see in this restaurant? We see in the immediate foreground, a woman wearing Egyptian mascara, right? Which is obviously, that, 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 that's Veidt's thing, right? Veidt is, and he's got this fixation with, with death and the afterlife. So we already see Veidt's kind of doing his thing on the culture there. We see two homosexual men, hanging out at a table, right? And I thought that was interesting because I got the feeling that Moore's 1985 was considerably more out than the real 1985 was. And I thought it was an important detail because we have these tragic backstories of how the silhouette was basically kicked out of the Minutemen for being lesbian and ultimately was killed in what presumed was a, was a hate crime. But then there's also the whole context of like Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis were gay, were right. gay lovers and couldn't couldn't be out about it, you know? Yeah, you know, so, to, to, so to see this kind of progress in, in there, I thought it was an interesting thing, giving you a sense of where is the society kind of heading, right? And I thought it was an interesting detail given how fascist Moore's 1985 is otherwise, right? But then to the left, there's a, there's a woman getting her dinner served and she's like, oh boy, and they're serving her a whole turkey but it's a whole turkey with four drumsticks on uh, on it. Like, I, uh-huh. I guess like a genetically engineered yeah. turkey. You're like, what, what, wait a minute, what is that, right? <laughs> it's just, just, it's background. Just, just, just background. And like, these awesome. are so, four these are four. so many details chucked in there. And like, you learn so much about the world in one frame and you're not even, you're directed to look all past it. And this happens again and again and again and again throughout the whole thing. There are other frames that, you know, that deliver, Lots of cool details, but not all of them are quite that dense. But man, when it happens, you're like, what is this? The density of symbols in the frame is only, it's only matched by 
the density in which those symbols are used or motifs are used. I mean, you know, uh, take the uh, the smiley face button, which which right? appears in that carnage scene at the end, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> It's reflected in the doomsday clock and the in the clock on Madison Square Gardens in you know Seymour's T-shirt from the Frontiersman. Yep. There, I've got a list of like fourteen things. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it just it it appears so often, and even the plugs on the the spark hydrants, yeah. they're smiley faces. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't escape it. You know, every every frame is so dense and loaded with meaning that. I don't care if you think that Moore is jerking off because I love this stuff. <laughs> it's the same reason. Yeah. It's the same reason I love Moby Dick and the same reason I love Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I would far prefer an overindulgent Moore festooning us with just a just massive amount of over detail than for somebody to sort of you know hand wave stuff and sort of you know and 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 offer a sketchy story. I mean, this this is we do have an embarrassment of riches here as far as narrative detail goes. And and you know what's funny is that if you read the ultimate uh, the Watchmen Ultimate Edition, I guess, which has like kind of a it's got like a script for the first issue in the back of it, Moore is famous for like if you think there's a lot of stuff here dude, you should see the amount of like directions he gives to the artists and the scripts. I mean, it's like each frame is like half a page of like single page text. It's a massive amount of material. So I have to say Moore is thinking on a pretty amazing level in terms of just the amount of data he's trying to process and put into his story. It's, it's kind of astonishing. Well, I think I'd like to move to the next moment of truth because this is, um, it's, it's going to move us right along, you know, from, from the apocalypse. This is a, a little bit before that. It's, it's, one of certainly one of my favorite moments of the book. I think it's one that a lot of people come to. Joe, I'm going to hand it over to you. This is your moment. So, so take it away. Yeah, I, mean, I, I had mentioned earlier that there are no true heroes or villains in the book, and it occupies a, a constant state of sort of uh, moral lack of clarity uh, with the with the characters. And my favorite character out of all of it is Vite, is is Ozymandias, uh, because he is absolutely without any moral doubt at all. He is the one character, maybe other than the comedian, although the comedian betrays him, who does not doubt their, their rectitude or their, their place in the world. Vite knows what's right. He has studied it. He has, and Chris is, is going to take issue with this, and that's cool. I was that just going to say Rorschach. Rorschach has no doubts. Well, no, Rorschach he, has no doubts, he but he's also insane. Uh, maybe Vite is too. <laughs> yeah. you know, we could have that discussion. You're right, though. Rorschach does have what he considers to be um, moral clarity but it's on a much more pedestrian scale. I'm going to put a pin what, in this vice, because I think, I think yeah. Tom's moment talks about that a whole, a whole lot. So I'm going to, I'm going to, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But what I like about Vite is Vite is essentially he's Dr. Doom who never had anything blow up in his face. Right. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. <laughs> he yeah. is megalomaniacal. You know, I often tell the joke that, um, the problem with, with Democrats is they think they know better than you. And the problem with Republicans is they think they are better than you. And Vitus both. Um, <laughs> he, thinks he, he thinks he knows better than you. And he thinks he is better than you. Oh, He's probably that's, right. That's frightful. On both yeah, counts. Yeah. Okay. And so he has, he, he has this, this intellect that, you know, again, it's the Dr. Doom sort of like, uh, or Mr. Fantastic ability to process all the information and come to a, a, a conclusion. And so he just like absorbs all this media, right? Like he's essentially the supercomputer that takes in metadata and detects patterns and it's allowed him to become obscenely wealthy and it's allowed him to sort of interpret what direction humanity is headed in. And he has determined that absent some great unifying event, humanity is screwed. 
and that we're going to just be at each other's throats unless we determine. And I think I think you, Bill, had earlier on mentioned the otherness that is so rampant throughout this book, right? That 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 it's frequent that people uh, identify other groups, the the frontiersmen or whoever it is, says, "Oh, these others are the enemy." Others, are, whether it's you know the uh, the, the capitalist communist loggerheads that's being depicted in this or, or anything else. And, and Veidt says, well, there's got to be some, some other other in order for humanity to unite. And so he drops this, <laughs> this genetically engineered alien on, the, on New York City uh, in Chris's moment. So he spends all of, I think it's, it's the 11th issue, I think, he, he's, he talks throughout the entire issue. Um, all of it his whole thought process (laughs) the whole thing he takes you through the monologue to end all monologues and then the the poor uh you know night owl and the silk specter are standing there and they're like and he tells them exactly the plan he says okay you know i'm gonna i'm gonna kill uh a quarter of a million people and that'll help bring humanity together and they're like you can't do that he goes oh please you know what do you mean going to do it I, i did it 35 minutes ago and he's like, do you think I'm stupid? Do you think, you know, this is a Bond movie or, or a, a, what does he call it? Like a, a, a serial a Republic. Republic serial. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what it was. Do you think that I would, I would tell you this if there was any chance of you, of you affecting it or changing the outcome? I did it 35 minutes ago. And that is the moment, that is like the mic drop moment in this, in this entire novel where somebody just has their act together and is utterly undistracted by any human considerations. Uh, everybody else has their relationship problems or their mommy problems or whatever else they've got going on, except for Dr. Manhattan, who's out to lunch. But Veidt is utterly focused on what he believes. He is doing what he thinks is a completely heroic act. And he's right. He does actually accomplish what he sets out to do. But he, well, I, I there's a lot. Well, okay, maybe it's a little bit. It's a little bit left to the imagination. Me and Chris are giving the but, wobble hands. That's fine, but I, I, he. Uh, there is a lot of evidence given that, at least in the short term, it accomplishes a lot of yeah. what he thinks. Oh yeah. And then you know, more puts out a couple of uh, Reese's pieces that are going to lead you to think that maybe it isn't going to work so well. So I get it. Yeah. I, I understand where you're going with that. But I, I love the fact that it deconstructs the uh, the monologuing villain. Mm. I love that we have <laughs> this character who is both villain and hero at the same time, and that to me is just really, really. Cool. <laughs> you, you you never saw before. It was that whole like you've seen the monologue, you know how it sets up. It you know the hero has one last chance to stop it, and it was just like, it just does that scene. Joe is like was such a circuit breaker when I read it. I just jaw hung open like that's against the rules like that you can't do that and, and more more was playing chess while everybody else is expecting checkers the entire time that was like a great like that was a masterstroke move it just i mean i just sat there i remember when i first read it i just looked at the page i'm like no and i read read back i, I flipped back a page and read the scene again see it was gonna play out different I'm like what? <laughs> no, I was like, I just couldn't. Well, not- you know that somewhere Lex Luthor and Red Skull are going, why did you yeah, yeah, exactly. that? Uh, yeah, uh. why didn't it shoot Batman in the head? Bam, bam, no two, and I'm done. <laughs> it's like, no, it's a, the rules don't allow for that. But these aren't those rules, you know? And and yeah, such a great, a great scene. I love how, like, you don't spend any time thinking of being the hero, trying to figure out how to foil the, you know, the guy's plan. Now you're like, oh, he did it, and now we have to deal with the consequences. It's, yeah. it's terrific. Yeah. I love that. You know, 
it's definitely a needle of the, you know, off the record kind of moment uh, with that though. You, you, you take it aback and you're just like, wait, there's no, we've dealt with the monologuing hero, but he's doing this not to give us like the secret to his plan. It's, it's, this is already done. How, how where does this go from here? Like, <laughs> Humana, humana, humana. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not it's not even a monologue. It's a victory lap. We just didn't know it till it was over. Like, <laughs> he's spiking, uh, he's spiking the ball yeah, for an like, entire an entire. Right, he made it thirty five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, yeah and, and what's kind of cool is it before <laughs> D's nuts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like <laughs> a dab for the ages. As he's monologuing, like. Night Owl and Rorschach keep coming at him, Rorschach especially, and he just like swats them away. He's like, he's like, please, like, don't, like, let me spare you the humiliation of another beating, okay? Let me just tell you what I'm going to tell you. I mean, he's so in control, and it's so, you see the hero is so utterly emasculated, you know? Um, and like Night Owl in particular, he's a character who he suffers from impotence in real life, right? And then like as a superhero is rendered impotent and, and like, and Vite is like explaining it to him. Like, this is how I took this away from you, you know, right to his face. I think what was really cool is that, you know, it's when it's followed up, Night Owl is like just boggling. His head's really trying to take all this in. And we see this, this, the scenes that Chris had, had talked about. And then we cut back to Vite and his monitors and he's seeing news coming in. You know, the Soviets are going to withdraw their peace brokers and his talks and the, the nuclear war is going to get called off. And yeah, and you just see him, he just raises his arms up and goes, I did it. And you have the background of, of Alexander cutting the Gordian knot behind him. And, and you know, and he, he's exultant. But what that leads to is a really cool moment that, you know, Joe, you said that Vite has no doubt and he never shows it until it's all done. And who does he go to for validation but Dr. Manhattan? The only person he can really relate to because Vite- You're the only one I can talk well, to. Yeah, well, Vite's only marginally less disassociated than Manhattan, right? And that's only because he's, he's right. still mortal. This is a great line that often, it doesn't get quoted a lot, but I think it's a great one where he, where he looks out and he goes, it, it all turned out in the end, right? And Manhattan's like, nothing ever ends. And just and boom, takes off and leaves, leaves Adrian to kind of to think about that. And, and I, I just love notion, the notion of like, well, what is Vite's supercomputer brain going to do with that little nugget of wisdom? <laughs> Realizing that like, yeah, you solved the problem for now, but these things have a way of not always staying solved. There was a, an Austrian satirist named Karl Krauss, and he had this famous line. He said, a weak man has doubts before a decision. A strong man has doubts after. Mm. Um, and I never really knew quite what that meant. And I still don't. But that's certainly, if anything sums up Vite, I think <laughs> yeah. that's it. Did get it done though, pretty much. <laughs> Well, and again, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit too that like, you know, and, and remember we were all there for 9-11 and thought like, oh, was this the thing, right? Do you remember after, like, we were like, was this the thing that kind of cut through and changed the way that we, and for, you know, what was it, a week we were nice to each other and then we went right back to, you know, uh, everything else and it, and it kind of got worse um, for a variety of reasons. But we would talk, somebody who had mentioned it before, I think it might've been you, Tom, that, that, uh, shared something about more and his and his <laughs> his his pessimism yeah, well you know <laughs> it, we went back to after a week it's new york you know that's what we do so <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty much new york gives itself a week off for anything yeah. maximum yeah, and we'll, that's we'll it. take it's a week back. and then we'll go back to you know kicking, <laughs> yeah. kicking one another while we're down and all that neat stuff. yeah 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 <laughs> a quick post 9-11 story i'll share with you really quick is that i was there for the big blackout that happened a couple years after right the big northeast blackout mm -hmm. and i was in, i was in manhattan in midtown everything goes dark right and i look out the window and what astonished me was that the traffic lights went out and it's midtown midday traffic instantly i saw people on the ground like they just they just 
went into rally mode and suddenly like somebody, a civilian went out in the middle of the park, uh, the, the intersection, started directing traffic, cars started moving, no honking, no, no stride. Like all of a sudden people, they, they, they remember, they went back into crisis mode very, very quickly. And I thought that was really kind of, I was like, you know, rock on New York. <laughs> like, you're like good, good on you, you know? But getting back to, to the whole, the whole Vite scene and, and this great ending about how he, he lays out his whole plan because he can't, because it's already been done. I always thought that was kind of a neat, bookend to a scene much earlier in the story which is when Moloch is recounting how the comedian visits him one night in a drunken stupor because he has stumbled upon Vite's plan and his own weird moral certainty is shattered by it right like, like he can't make sense like he's been this like weird agent of order against chaos and he can't parse what this thing is all about and in part because it so completely obviates guys like him and so completely obviates the notion of what a superhero is. It's like, we're talking about problems way bigger than socking some dude in the jaw. I don't care if he's Captain Carnage or what, you know? I never quite appreciated that scene until I would really get to the Vite scene at the end where, where he's, he's explaining what this is all about and what he was trying to achieve and the fact that a guy did it. It gets back to this constant sort of, almost a repudiation of the very notion that superheroes could even work. You know, like in, in this world of Moors, the person who dares to put on a costume and sally forth in the world because they are single-handedly going to stop enough bad things from happening to meaningfully move the lever in society like that just that whole notion just gets completely repudiated you know and i think we see what happens to the comedian when it gets repudiated to his face like his mind just breaks into a million little pieces you know and you see with Vite, like, what does that really mean? It means doing this <laughs> to do that, you know? And it's, it's just a really, it's a really, a really cool. I mean, and yeah, it gets totally yeah. destroyed by that. I, I totally agree with you, Bill. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's worth noting that Adrian Vite's character changed the character of Dr. Doom. It was after this point that we started seeing Dr. Doom as right. Dr. Doom started to have a point you know, like maybe he didn't know what was best sometimes <laughs> in, in, in the, you know, 25 years since Dr. Doom has become a much more complicated character yeah. than he used to be. This is what, 86? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 80, 86. It's right around the same time as Secret Wars, which is when Dr. Yep. Doom started to be a creature of moral conscience. Yeah, Secret Wars 84. Uh, Secret Wars 84. So so, yeah, so yeah. I think that, that that I think both Doom and Magneto had started on that path already. Yeah, but, but Vite probably yeah. it was an accelerant. Oh, I I can't imagine anybody who's writing comics at the time came across Watchmen and wasn't profoundly impacted with the notion of like, all right, what I thought I could do with the villain has now completely changed, right? And what I can do with the hero has completely changed. I mean, and, and you know the fact that it just it, it's almost like, you know, you know it's almost like um. Wizards of the Coast recently made big news because they announced with, with future iterations of D&D, they're going to ditch their nine-point alignment system, right? You, you should have characters, you know, lawful good, lawful neutral, lawful evil, neutral good, neutral, chaotic neutral, chaotic good, chaotic neutral, chaotic evil. Everything fit into one of those nine little boxes, moral boxes, right? And some monsters were just inherently evil. And like, nope, you know what? We're going to kind of do away with that. And it's going to be much more of a morally relativistic world, right? And you know, some people really like they don't like that because they like the simplistic kind of moral scheme that the game can can provide. Having a much more nuanced moral landscape requires you to play in a much more nuanced kind of way. And I gotta believe, like for comic writers looking at Watchmen, it's almost like you know what? I don't have a choice. I can choose to go back to the old check the boxes kind of writing if I if I desire, and then that's okay. But it's going to be what it is. 
or I can choose to live in this world that, that more kind of helped to open up a little bit and I can try to plumb these depths. And um, I think that's where you've seen some of the best comics come, come out is, is that notion that the lines are just not nearly as distinct as they, as they used to be, you know? I mean, you tap into something there, Bill, that is, is so, um, it's a live wire when it comes to the, the bifurcation that you see in fandom, I think, where people who want the simplicity, right? Like I want there to be good guys and bad guys so that I can beat up the bad guys without having to think about the fact that they're people too. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's easier to just to, you know, think about D and D you're going to go and wipe out all of these orcs and commit, you know, genocide yeah. in their cave. I don't know. <laughs> it's, okay, okay. it's okay. They're all right. We're murder yeah. hobos. It's okay to be a murder hobo. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I think that, you know, there's a resistance sometimes to relativism because it, you have to think. Yeah. And, I, and I've always gone back to um, how difficult it is to be thoughtful about our actions versus just being able to put on your your white hat and gallop off. Everybody wants to be a hero, but nobody wants to think about the fact that the other guy thinks he's a hero too. Yeah. Well, this yeah. is the reason why I have so much trouble with Rorschach as a character and I can't stand it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I think this is a perfect segue to your moment of truth, Tom. So, so why don't you take it away? Yeah, well, you know, my moment of truth is Rorschach's death and, you know, him basically you know begging dr manhattan to, to kill him like go ahead do it you know this is a big <laughs> death by cop but he doesn't yet he takes his mask off and do it. It, it, it it's an arresting moment and a moment of truth for me for like a few different reasons just going back like rorschach's that character that you know he is the guy who's everything's in black and white for him you're either good or you're evil and he can't like really fit into this world yet he's the guy who's out there like still doing his thing uh, like, yeah well, only you know hero who's still out there in the costume uh trying to do, you know when they try to make him retire and they try and you know subject him to the keen act you know he throws people in front of the police station with you know, yeah. say, never or whatever. never yeah he drops a dead rapist in front of the, the police station yeah. <laughs> That's so, his answer. Know, he's that he's that guy who only sees black and white and and no shades of gray and you know that's what the whole mask is you know about mm -hmm. with the with the with the blots and everything and like the, the reason why his death is such a moment of truth for me partially is because you can get a moment that you really love i think from characters that you don't really like <laughs> and yeah th this is you know one, one of those moments so like rorschach struggles with this whole black white thing all you know all throughout the book and you know, he tortures poor Moloch, you know, trying to get information out of him and, uh, you know, hits him up with, you know, the wrongness of, you know, being a guy who has a, an unregistered gun in his apartment because, you know, that that's wrong. You know, the guy's dying of cancer, but that's wrong. So, you know, he yeah. sees him as evil and never will he ever be anything close to good. So, you know, th that's just one example of all these sort of struggles that uh, he, he's had all throughout the book. And, and you get to this moment, you know, Vite reveals his plan and, you know, all the heroes of the world are sort of backed into corners and neutralized. I mean, Dr. Manhattan, the most powerful being, you know, on the planet who experiences time, like all at the same time, can't do a damn thing to stop this. And, you know, now it's very much a, a moral calculation. Like, what do we do? And, uh, you know, 
Veidt's already done the moral calculus and like, he's like, you can live with this and you can, you know, live with what I did to Manhattan and, uh, you know, we can all move on and there's peace in the world or you can, you know, mess it up. <laughs> and, you know, that's the moment where you start to see, okay, yep, Rorschach is not going to let this go. And, you know, he walks no. off and he, he's, He's going to, uh, you know, let the world know because he, he'll pursue truth to the end that, you know, that this is uh, this is what happened. Doesn't even think about, you know, how is this going to play out and what is that going to do to the peace that Veidt's brought to to the world, you know, even as, as, as horribly won as it was. And, uh, you know, he, he gets this in, in a way he gets kind of like what he's always wanted out of his own death. It's basically he gets to go die on the hill that he always wanted to die on. This is wrong. And he gets to, you know, yeah. all right, well, you know, if you're going to prevent me from doing this, you're going to have to kill me. And that's the yeah. moment of truth right there is like when he basically lays that out for Dr. Manhattan and, you know, what does Dr. Manhattan do? He vaporizes him, you know, big puddle of uh, goo <laughs> and no more Rorschach. Rorschach. Oh, but here's the fun part. What I love about that is he doesn't kill Rorschach. He kills Kovacs. He does. He does. He yeah. Does. <laughs> Takes the mask off. Like, what are you waiting for? Do it. And then the next frame is him without the mask that on. He goes, do it. Yeah. And, it and, and you see the speech balloon changes. And that's when he jumps. He jumps. Like he knows Rorschach, you know, is, is like Kovacs takes over for Rorschach for a moment. Like it's this weird thing. I, I absolutely love those frames. They're some of my favorite frames in all of graphic literature storytelling and it's just it just i mean and, and i don't have a particular fanboy thing over rorschach i just love that moment i i do love that moment yeah for that and and you know th there's this whole thing about like who's who's kovacs and who's rorschach and like he lets you know that like after that one incident you know where he gave the guy the choice to like burn to death or cut off his own hand yeah that he's rorschach from there on and doesn't respond yeah. to uh, you know, people calling him Kovacs and, and, and stuff like that. He's got that weird speech pattern to him. All these things that, you know, show he's like a different guy now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. go ahead, Chris. I don't know. My thoughts about that moment have changed over my multiple readings. This time I kind of came away with the sense that Kovacs knew that there was no moral answer and that's why he wanted out. Like, as Rorschach, he like, like you know, he is he is obligated to be Rorschach. He, Rorschach can only do this one thing, and I had the sense maybe that Kovacs though knew that it wasn't quite right that there is grayness here, and he doesn't know how to deal with it, so he's opting out. Yeah, he's got tears streaming from his eyes when he screams at Manhattan to to. He knows when he says do it, he knows what he's talking about. He's like Manhattan's gonna snap his fingers and he will cease to exist. And tears are just running down his face. And it's like he's got, he can choose between a city full of dead people or a nuclear holocaust of a planet. And neither one is tenable to him. And he's, to Tom's point, he's built his whole life around black and white decisions. There is no choice there. He's, it's like, like, it's like right. syntax error, you know? Yeah, it just doesn't compute for him. And like, I think, Chris, there is an argument to be made that, that maybe that's, you know, where the two separate again like they've been together since that one incident maybe this is the separation of them and you know something of even a redemption moment maybe. you know who knows but that's that's washman for you you know you're 
<laughs> yeah. yeah you can keep talking about well, you know it's one of those books every time you read it yeah. like, you pick up something different you know yeah. I, I think you know i mentioned a bill or like I, I hadn't even remember. This is a book I read first read. It was the first graphic novel I read, but I didn't start reading graphic novels until college. And, uh, you know, on a borrowed copy. You, you started by jumping in the deep end, Holmes. Yeah, well, <laughs> somebody told me uh, early on, they're like, All right, if you have one graphic novel in your collection, it's The Watchmen, you know? So, yeah, yeah like, okay, there it is. Well, I guess I got to read this. You know, that, that led to more, of course, but. Uh, this isn't like something that I reread all the time. I just have done, you know, more rereadings of it over the years. And, and mm -hmm. every time it just seems like I get something different out of it. That might just be due to the density. I'm not sure, but. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think great art does that. I, I think truly great art. It's the sort of thing that it is, it is ever present and, because you, you're a different person every time you go back to it, right? Even if you read it again next week, you're a different person next week than you were this week. And so what awaits you there, the experience that you contextualize is going to be a little bit different. And, and the greatness of that art makes that difference um, palpable. I agree. I agree. You know, Tom, I got to say, over the course of the last couple of days, you, you shared this great image, which is, I guess, like a screenshot from like a tweet and somebody goes, yo, Ozymandia sure was wrong about a global catastrophic event uniting everyone, which in, in COVID, you know, era is, is quite hilarious. And the follow-up was, imagine Alan Moore's view of the future actually proving to be too optimistic. <laughs> That's what I was saying earlier. I made me want to weep. I'm like, man, come on. <laughs> it's even worse than he predicted. <laughs> exactly. How is that possible? <laughs> Like, come on man no 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 it was it, my wife really thinks good. i'm too pessimistic i might bring up that meme later <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure yeah you're gonna make her read a 500 page graphic novel so you can get the get the meme like that's the new reality it's like we we will live our life by meme but first do your homework <laughs> you gotta earn it that's <laughs> no, so good so well look before we wrap up i've got final thought when I first read Watchmen, I actually put it down after the first issue. Um, I didn't understand the art. I was not sure what the whole thing was going to be about. And I just missed why the critics were going ape over it. But a year afterwards, when the series had finally concluded, and my friends who had stuck with it were then like freaking out over the series ending, I finally was like, okay, now I can just read the whole thing. And I borrowed a friend set and I read through them all in one go. And that's when I understood what was really being done with this amazing amazing story. I think a central irony of Watchmen is that it was still constrained by the format of a genre it was trying to deconstruct. And because of that, it almost missed me as a reader. And I'm probably not the only one. And I think that DC Comics seemed to know this. And in 1987, it re-released the series in a single trade paperback. Now, while this monthly series wasn't marketed as a graphic novel, the collected edition very much was. And mainstream bookstores gave it shelf space alongside uh, with other books rather than other comics and magazines. The collected edition of Watchmen helped to validate the notion of a single volume comic sold and read as a novel rather than a series. It wasn't the first one to do this, but it, was, it made a huge impact when it, when it did. And the collected edition also, I think, did a lot to help validate the notion of writing stories specifically meant for that format rather than softbound single issues. And at a time when comics were typically bought a month at a time and then bagged and boarded for potential resale, the graphic novel created a whole new kind of experience for readers, publishers, and creators. You know, Watchmen wasn't just a revolutionary superhero story. It was a publishing revolution as well. 
It remains the highest selling graphic novel to date, thanks in part due to a huge surge in demand before the release of Zack Snyder's 2009 movie adaptation. But it's also exhibit A in how the way in which a story is published can have a massive impact on what kinds of stories are created in the wake of it. But however one reads Watchmen, the truth is that there are two kinds of comics readers in the world. There are those who have read comics before Watchmen, and there are those who have read comics after Watchmen. And with all due respect to the first, I consider myself to be most fortunate to be counted among the second. Guys, it's been Moment of Truth. Thank you so very much for being with us. We'll see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.